Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? Not too bad. We've got a pretty good show today. It's going to be a little bit different because we we actually we had a guest booked, like a dynamite guest booked, and unfortunately, sort of at the last minute, they weren't available. Hopefully, we'll be able to reschedule and bring you that topic in the near future. Uh, so this episode is just going to be going through the news. Uh, without further ado, let's jump into it. So we haven't been with you for the past couple of weeks. So we 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 do have quite a few things that happened over the past two weeks. Holidays was a big one. Uh, the end of Ramadan happened. Eid al-Fitr happened, as well as a very important day, May twenty fifth, was the twentieth anniversary of the liberation of South Lebanon, the twentieth anniversary of the Israeli withdrawal from South Lebanon, which is widely seen as a a big victory, not just for South Lebanon, not just for Hezbollah, but for really all of Lebanon and for for a whole lot of Lebanese. Yeah, it's a really important day that basically uh, brings out different issues every year, depending on what's uh, big in the news, etc. Um, this year, there was a lot of um, the, the usual attacks on Hezbollah, meaning like, uh, you know, uh, reducing the importance of Liberation Day, by saying, you know, Hezbollah still occupies South, Le- South Lebanon. This is from one side of the spectrum. The other side, trying to, you know, uh, glorify Hezbollah and bring back its positive reputation or focus on its uh, resistance uh, uh, reputation or uh, aspect of the of the organization. So it's it's usually, you know, it's a nice national holiday or event, but it's also one that polarizes people to an extent and brings out the extremes of, of the spectrum. Of course, this year, celebrations for everything, uh, not just the South Liberation Day, but also Idol Fitter, occurred under the cloud of coronavirus. And and since we spoke to you two weeks ago, uh, Lebanon has broken the thousand case mark. So we're, we're recording this on Saturday, a little bit earlier than usual. And as of today, the Lebanese health ministry says that there have been 1,191 confirmed cases that course, will probably go up by the time you listen to this podcast. And and that number is up from a little under 900 uh, just two weeks ago. So we added about 200 the week before last, 200 cases, and then we added another 100 or so this past week. And this has been a pretty large spike, uh, especially that, uh, you know, that, that two weeks ago, that 200 number. Um, and that, that's probably the largest spike since March. However, at the same time, no deaths have occurred for the past two weeks. So the total dead from coronavirus in Lebanon remains at 26. Uh, so, th- so that is a, uh, a positive sign. Lebanese authorities have responded to this spike of cases, not by shutting the whole country down again, but sort of like trying this localized approach. If they can spot uh, outbreak areas, they try to shut those areas down locally. However, on the whole, they're trying to continue the reopening process. So, for instance, if you want to go and walk on Beirut's Corniche or or take a jog there, you can now most of the time, uh, most days. That's open, and we're we're continuing to see the reopening of certain certain businesses and, and other things. The government did extend the general mobilization to June 7th, uh, and that, of course, may be extended again. We will find that out in the coming week or so. But a lot of talk is focusing on the airport and when exactly the airport will open. Now, Air France has said that they would resume Beirut-Paris service on June 12th, if the Beirut airport is open, of course. Greece has green-lighted Lebanese flying to their country as of June 15th. But all these plans are tentative. The, the health minister, Hamad Hassan, 
said that no decision has been at, has been made yet on reopening the Beirut airport. This is just on Friday, uh, reportedly uh, speaking at the cabinet session. And he said that we're going to we're going to wait to see if the rate of new infections declines over the next couple of weeks. So while this is starting to be more in the news, just like keep in mind, everything's up in the air still. Uh, Beirut airport could remain shut down uh, much longer or we could actually start to see the reopening sometime later this month. Yeah, and the in the city overall, the country overall, especially Beirut, feels like it's, you know, back to uh, the normal days, as we were mentioning two weeks ago. People are, uh, you know, going about their business more more normally than before. The only thing probably stopping that is the policy by the government of allowing uh, car plates that end with even or odd numbers to to uh, be used on specific days. I got a, a ticket the other day for that because I was violating it for a doctor's appointment. So they're quite strict on that. Where when they have you know policemen uh, giving out tickets, maybe this is reducing traffic to a certain extent. But whoever lives in Beirut knows that you know traffic is already bad in enough regardless of this policy now yeah exactly exactly and and traffic was actually not going around unesco palace this thursday because that's where we had our big meeting of parliament <laughs> was that was that cheesy enough for you nizar no it's fine it's fine I had actually, just a little anecdote, I had an appointment in the bank close to UNESCO, much closer also to uh, the residence of Nabih Birri in Aintini, and it was almost impossible to get to the bank. So a five-minute ride took me around one hour to get there. Yeah, the whole area was closed, especially that, you know, there were a lot of riot police present uh, anticipating protesters because a protest was being held during the session, uh, simultaneously with the session, outside of uh, UNESCO, near the roundabout, by people mostly from, you know, Thawra roots, from like independent uh, political affiliations, uh, protesting against one of the laws that was on the parliament's agenda, which is the uh, amnesty law. Right. And and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But first off, so parliament met, that was sort of like the, the big political event this past week, right? And, and so... One of the biggest things that they did was they passed this uh, 1.2 trillion lira uh, sort of emergency rescue package. About half of that money is slated to go to uh, poor Lebanese families. Supposedly 200,000 households are going to benefit from monthly payments of about 400,000 lira through the end of the year. Um, and so that's about $100 a month at the current exchange rate. And th- this is really just sort of a, a drop in the bucket, though, because somewhere around half of Lebanese are thought, to, uh, half of Lebanese households are thought to be in poverty, to be living in poverty now. And, and so 200,000 households really doesn't cut it when you're talking about two or three million people who might need assistance. Uh, but, it, but it is a good start. The, uh, the other half of the money goes to basically to businesses and, and industry, a half of the half. Uh, so a quarter of the uh, 1.2 trillion lira package is uh, for lump sum payments to businesses and laborers that's supposed to benefit uh, some 7,000 small and medium-sized enterprises, as well as some 30,000 farmers and 6,600 uh, vocational workers. This is according to uh, Tamar Asari, who reported extensively on the parliament session. The the last quarter of the, this package, this 1.2 trillion lira package, is actually payments in dollars to importers 
as everyone knows, we've been talking about on the show, there's been a, a huge problem with just importing basic goods because uh, importers can't don't have access to dollars like they used to. The banks aren't giving them out, at least not at the uh, uh, proper rate, or they they can't get them at the proper rate uh, usually. But we, we saw both Parliament addressing this in, in this session, and then separately, I want to mention here, BDL intervened this week to also support the import of basic food items and raw materials for industry. I am not entirely sure how these, I, b- I believe these two things are totally separate. I know the BDL intervention did not mention the government one and it came before the government one. And so how exactly all of this works out, we'd have to, you know, get the text and, and look at that. But this is definitely trying to, you know, ameliorate the situation. Hassan Diab, for instance, the prime minister has been talking about food insecurity. A couple of weeks back, he had this editorial or, or, or op-ed in the uh, Washington Post uh, that talked about this. And so certainly Lebanese leaders know that this is a problem and they're trying to address it both through parliament and through the central bank. Yeah, and basically signals the first uh, widening of uh, the circle of subsidies that the central bank is giving to um, to importers because the central bank previously was only supporting uh, the import of essentials, uh, you know, fuel and medicine and wheat. Uh, but now it inclu- it's including as well uh, raw materials for uh, industry, which is, in my, in my opinion, quite important because if we're trying to shift consumption, we need a big shift in consumption today to local products, right? To match the, to, to be able to accommodate for the new prices. And if we're going to do that, we need uh, affordable products produced locally. So it's not a bad idea, uh, but how, how much money is involved in this and whether it's going to have a negative impact on the reserves of the central bank in foreign currency is something that we will uh, we are yet to see right essentially this bill is tacking on more spending for the year this is this is coming from outside the budget as i as i understand it and the question is well how exactly do you do that or one of the questions involved in this is how exactly do you do that if the government's bankrupt or if the government can't you know some of this is dollars if the government can't provide the dollars yeah and speaking of dollars, Parliament failed to pass the long-awaited capital controls bill. Um, this has been months in the making. I remember, what was it? It was, I think, before the lira even started to falter, the the exchange rate last year. Even before that started, I think Dan Azzi and others were calling for capital controls. And that didn't happen. That never happened on a systemic level. That never happened on an official level. And so it ended up being just banks doing their own capital control, saying, you know, deciding whether their customers could send money out or not. And of course, this was applied unevenly. All of the evidence suggests that. And so basically, if you had WASTA, uh, you were probably able to get some of your dollars out of the banking system. Um, Maybe you still can. And if you didn't, then you had a harder time getting access to the dollars that were in your accounts. So this has been a like a, a common sense thing. Let's let's make capital controls across the board so it's not it doesn't differ from bank to bank. And also, if we have an official capital controls bill or something that is uh, that comes down from a, a Lebanese authority, whether that's Parliament or BDL, then you can hold people accountable, right, to the set standard that is universal. And it still doesn't exist now because the capital controls bill apparently had gaps in the language, according to Yassine Jabber, who is uh, one of the MPs from Nawatiye. And so it was, uh, I believe, sent back, yes, yeah, sent back to committee 
Yeah, and there was a media report that uh, the decision to send it back was after Billy received a letter from Riyad Salem, the central bank governor, giving four points of critique to the bill, like largely technical, but also related to, you know, the size of money that will be allowed to be transferred outside and whether the banks can handle it. Uh, the, the rules concerning when uh, we start considering money fresh money, because we have this new concept of fresh money uh, that came up with the, with the arbitrary capital control measures by banks in Lebanon, where if you transfer money from from outside, you can do whatever you want with it. And this new bill says, okay, if you get money as fresh money, you can also uh, send it outside. And there was a critique about that. So it's a, bit, a bunch of points. They were mostly technical, I would say, rather than political. Uh, so uh, I don't know exactly what point uh, mattered the most to Nabih Birri or uh, led to you know withdrawal of the bill. But I guess it's a bit more serious now because you know two, three weeks ago, we were talking about it as something that we don't know at all whether it would happen or not, right? Right? It was like up in the air completely. Now it's a little, it looks like a, a more serious process happening. And apparently, you know, we're, we're having the IMF talks right now, negotiations with the IMF. Um, and, and reportedly, having a capital controls law passed is one of their demands. Like, okay, at very least, you have to uh, clear this bar. So we, we don't expect this to, to go away, at least not while uh, negotiations with the IMF are ongoing. Yeah. Uh, Parliament also passed a banking secrecy reform, sort of. <laughs> it, it was supposed to allow judges <laughs> to look into bank accounts. Uh, uh, but the, I mean, the, the, anytime you grant the judiciary more control over something in this country, that that is a, a bit questionable because so many of the judges are seen to be uh, corrupt or in the pocket of one leader or another, and so there was there was some concern that this law, if you if you allow judges to really investigate government officials, whether that's ministers or MPs or whoever, uh, then it might be used punitively because the judiciary is not uh, as independent as it should be. So that's on one side. So Nabi Berri, the, the the Speaker of Parliament, inserted a last minute amendment that took this power away, it, and and. What this essentially did, uh, as I understand it, is it made the bill sort of toothless. Yeah. The, the enforcement mechanisms don't exist yet, to my understanding. And so essentially, I mean, because th this is a good idea, right? Like allow somebody to have oversight and really investigate uh, mm. politicians, especially those who have to do with anything like dealing with money and state money and public finances and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, nothing ended up happening. Yeah, lifting banking secrecy has been one of the major demands in the uprising and in general by by uh, reformists in Lebanon. You know, just a basic idea. If you want to follow corruption, if you want to follow the money that was wasted or uh, smuggled outside the country or whatever, you have to uh, lift banking secrecy. Uh, as you said, the, bank, the, the law was made toothless before it was um, approved um, because it restricted the right of using this, the right of, of lifting banking secrecy to two committees. One of them is the uh, National Anti-Corruption Committee and the other one is the Committee of Investigations in the Central Bank. The one in the Central Bank has had this jurisdiction for a while, right? They could lift banking secrecy if they wanted to as part of their investigations, but they never did, although billions of dollars uh, were revealed to have been, you know, um, smuggled out of the country after the crisis and the arbitrary control measures. So when was it supposed to activate this 
role or this power if it didn't during the past few months. So this makes it really unimportant. And uh, in my opinion, like it was just like a formal thing rather than anything serious. And the anti-corruption uh, committee is not yet created uh, and probably going to take years to be created. And it's not going to be independent because it's formed of six members. Six is a, is, a, is a magical number in Lebanon because usually it's divided among, among sectarian groups. Anyway, it's formed of six members and four of these people are appointed by the executive authority, the cabinet. So any, any decision to lift banking secrecy will be um, dependent on the political will of the powers in the cabinet. So the way the law was approved is basically bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and speaking of another failure of parliament, parliament failed to pass the amnesty law, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, this has been one of the most polarizing topics in the last two weeks in Lebanese politics. And a lot of people have been protesting or voicing their ob- objection uh, towards this law because it included, uh, or the bill included, the members and the families of the members of the South Lebanon army, uh, the militia that was uh, working with Israel during its occupation in South Lebanon, who fled Lebanon to Israel uh, upon uh, liberation in, on May 25, 2000. So uh, including these people in the bill uh, is, a, is a bit of a change. And it's also related to, it should be understood as basically a concession from Hezbollah to, to its loyal ally, the FPM, because in the agreement that they made in 2006, this was one of the uh, main points, the most problematic perhaps, and one of the most uh, surprising points mentioned in the agreement is that you know uh, they cooperate on allowing the return of these people on the condition, obviously, of uh, uh, those who have committed crimes going through prosecution and through the normal uh, criminal justice system. So this law now provoked a lot of people, uh, a lot of voices to say, no, we don't accept these people. These are traitors. These are collaborators. But when you look at the new ones, you find that actually nobody is totally against anyone returning uh, because they say, okay, maybe if it's members of a family of an SLA member, but they have not been involved in any criminal actions and not have and haven't had any relation to the SLA, uh, maybe we can consider their cases. And those who have should be uh, should go through the prosecution system. So more or less, everyone has a similar position. Still, it is used for like uh, propaganda and for polarization. And it was unfortunate to see like the huge polarization without nuance at all among people who were part of the Thawra um, and the spread of, of like, in my opinion, not very useful uh, trends like uh, threatening to kill those who come back, etc. It's not as big a topic as they make it seem because it's not really like uh, it's a normalization of relations with Israel or anything. It's basically just concerning a bunch of Lebanese people who escaped, who fled. I don't really have like a lot of empathy for these people. I'm not saying like it's like such a human uh, issue at all. It's just basically they made a political choice based on the, the fear of being prosecuted if they say probably and some of them based on uh, ambitions about other plans in, in, uh, in Israel. But right now if they if some of them really want to come back and they can be investigated and interrogated by security forces it's not really a big deal yeah this is uh one of those issues that is like everybody agrees that something needs to be done that some sort of amnesty needs to happen and not not just for you know some kid of an sla member or something like that who's uh stuck south of the border but a number of other people are affected by this and and really do need some sort of relief. But the nature of exactly how do you get everybody on board 
and who exactly should this apply to? And how do you make sure that there's nothing shady going on? Politicians aren't, for instance, granting amnesty to themselves. You know, all of these questions need to be answered, uh, it, I, I think, in a, a, a much more robust way uh, before all the politicians get on the same page about it. Yeah. And just to make it uh, to add on that and make it clear to everyone that this is a very sectarian issue and how it's being dealt with by political forces, because mainly we're talking about three groups of people, people in the Bekaa, the Northeast Bekaa, who, uh, who have drug related uh, charges or warrants against them, people who are Islamists, as you're saying, and uh, Sunni Islamists and uh, the, 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 the Lebanese who fled to, to Israel. So what this means is that, you know, every political force has either interest or no interest in, in supporting the cause of one of these groups. And including all of them is basically just to, uh, to ensure that uh, the different parties support the bill. So it's mostly upon a sectarian basis. And this is why Hariri was one of the most enthusiastic people about this bill. It's because uh, he has promised over and over again to award this bill uh, before the elections, during the parliament, uh, the parliamentary election campaign. And in general, he's been trying to pass this law as a way of gaining back some popularity among the communities of the Islamists who have been uh, detained and without proper prosecution uh, in the justice system for many years now. And some of them have spent more time than uh, their sentences would have given them. So uh, there is a real injustice there, but Hariri is trying to ride it. The same thing with other groups. Uh, they're trying to ride the, the the real injustice against people who have been involved in, you know, marijuana production or uh, drug use, etc. Precisely, precisely. Also, Parliament modified the appointments process. Previously, ministers would have a lot more control over this, uh, but now the Civil Service Board is set to like come in and nominate three candidates, which the cabinet would then uh, choose from. And, and this is probably, you know, a step in the right direction to help build like a, a more robust state if, if, if that's the goal, right? This uh, decision was cited as being part of the reason that cabinet failed on Friday, failed again to appoint key positions, including the governor of Beirut and uh, certain uh, important financial positions at BDL and the BCC and the CMA, as well as uh, positions at the economy ministry. Uh, I, I don't quite see how that works because Parliament had literally just passed this the day before. But some people are saying that it, it affected it. Certainly, the real—I I mean, the the main thing that has been delaying these appointments, and some of them have been delayed for a very long time. Like the BDL vice governors, uh, their term ended, I believe, in March of last year. Uh, so we're talking about over a year. So we're talking about over a year that these positions have been vacant. And and so it wasn't, it's not hugely surprising ever to hear that cabinet again failed to uh, appoint anybody for certain positions because mm. the political deal hasn't been made yet. They haven't reached, somebody's unhappy somewhere. And of course, you know, even though, I mean, we've said this before on this program, but this cabinet is, you know, while it looks sort of technocratic and you don't really know who a lot of the people are, right? They're not, not the usual familiar names. In reality, it's still, you know, th these people, uh, all evidence says that these people are still working for the, like the ruling Zuma, the, the, the Lebanon's top leaders, right? And clearly there has not been that agreement amongst the Zuma on these appointments yet. And that, that's the main reason that keeps uh, delaying these appointments. Yeah, we've talked about this many times, but like appointments are so important in Lebanese politics. It's... Uh, We've, I think we've described this before as like one of the main 
purposes of having any solid presence in the parliament or in the cabinet is basically to influence who is in which position and therefore who is advancing uh, which leader's political interest and who can get as much state resources as possible to distribute uh, among their uh, sectarian clients. It's really uh, super important. And at a time like this, where, you know, there's a big, there's been a big fight over uh, the BDL policy. I don't know if it's over the policy or basically over Yad Salemi himself, but still there have been, there has been like a big political chaos around that. I wouldn't expect uh, this process to be smooth at all. Yeah, absolutely. Very quickly, I just want to note that the ABL has proposed a plan of its own. ABL is the Association of Banks in Lebanon. Uh, the government had its rescue plan for the country that it promulgated, what was it, three weeks ago? or so. Well, ABL came out with their own plan a week and a half ago, and we're not going to go into the details or anything like that because this has already been done by the nerds. Uh, if you if you want to uh, read up on this, I would, I would go to financeforlebanon.com. That's finance, the number for lebanon.com. And you can read there, there, there are several pieces about the ABL plan and why it's not really a real plan and doesn't address the real issues right there. But uh, suffice it to say for us, the the plan really, uh, it sort of tries to push everything onto the government's uh, side, you know, like, oh, banks are not responsible for anything. And, you know, uh, it, it, it's really the government's fault for all of this stuff. Um, it, it doesn't really deal with the dollar liabilities that BDL owes to the banks. It tries also to sort of like do this stealth privatization of state assets, of, of which, I mean, it assumes that there are $40 billion worth of state assets. I don't know how they got that number. Suffice it to say, there are a number of problems in the plan. The plan really doesn't address a lot of the problems. It, it certainly doesn't offer this alternative financing model, you know, that uh, obviously Lebanon is in need of right now. And so if you want to know more about that, I would highly, highly recommend uh, reading Mike Azar uh, and uh, the other nerds uh, who have written about this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, to understand this just politically, what it, what this moment is for the banks, it's a moment of uh, inevitable losses, right? This is the class that has been like, they are basically uh, part of the ruling class in Lebanon. They've been so for the last, at least, at last, uh, the last 30 years. And uh, they've been enjoying a lot of accumulation, a lot of political influence, etc. This is the moment where they have to take some losses. And how they're thinking about it is that, okay, they can't say we don't want to take any losses. They're trying to say that, which it sounds very stupid when, you know, uh, the other day one of their officials said, uh, yes, uh, the only problem is that the state hasn't paid us the money and uh, the state should pay us, pay us the money and this solves everything. It's quite a ridiculous kind of <laughs> diagnosis of the issue. But more importantly, what they're trying to do is to uh, use this moment of losses for accumulation itself, right? Because this is a moment of very cheap accumulation if it happens. They take over state assets today and then they sell it in the future where cash is, cash is, is more, more available, etc., it's one of the uh, like most dangerous things to happen to a country in a moment of deep economic crisis. We saw that in Russia. We saw that in many places uh, where you know uh, when after deep economic crisis and the, the the privatization and selling of state assets led to you know more and more concentration of wealth and also basically ready, like uh, taking away from the state whatever less left of its uh, of its assets of its leverage in general to you know to take to uh, what allows it to consider different options when it's making economic policy 
it's one of the really like uh, most expected directions to be taken by the banks today because this is the only way that they can kind of compensate for what they're losing and then the solution to the crisis. Um, on another note, a, a real debate over the nature of Lebanon uh, is back, you know, com- coming back to the fore uh, over the past couple of weeks. Th- this past week, the Shiite Grand Mufti, uh, Ahmad Kabalan, called for the end of Ta'if and the end of uh, basically the National Pact, you know, which are these are very basic ideas that the state of Lebanon is founded on the Ta'if Accord, ended the civil war in 1989, and and the the National Pact or or National Accord was basically that unwritten agreement between Shar al-Khuri, independent Lebanon's first Christian president, and his counterpart, uh, Riyad al-Sullah, one of the uh, first prime ministers of uh, independent Lebanon. Those are, you know, two of the founding fathers of the country, and they agreed on this national pact of, you know, power sharing between Christians and Muslims. And we had the one of the highest Shiite authorities this past week come out and and make some some very very stringent remarks uh, about this. He he said uh, we confirmed that the origin of Lebanon's founding was done on a sectarian and tyrannical basis with the aim of serving the imperialist and monopolist project. This formula is finished. What Bashar al-Khuri and Riyad al-Sullah did is no longer valid for a state that befits a human being, a citizen. Strong words. Very strong words. Mm. Yeah. It's very interesting that this comes also after Nabih Biri recently made a, a speech, which he doesn't make very often. And he also talked about the need to, you know, to secularize the state, etc. Nabih Biri also always mentions these things. But this this year he gave it a bit more uh, importance uh, and talked about it more seriously. But just to give some background here, what this is doing is basically it's playing on the fear that exists, especially among Christians in Lebanon, that the Shiite uh, um, factions uh, in politics are seeking to transform the the political system from the parity between Muslims and Christians to something more proportional to the real size of uh, sizes of the religious communities on the ground. Meaning, you know, uh, instead of half the state, the Christians would be taking a third of it uh, in terms of the positions, the MPs, etc. Uh, but also uh, that you know the 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 worry that the most homogeneous politically, the most homogeneous religious community is the shared community. So there's this fear that uh, if we secularize the state, uh, the Shias will basically rule over Lebanon, etc. I mean, I have a lot to say about that, and I don't really agree with this perspective, but this is what it plays on. And I think that uh, bringing it out at this moment is really not like a, a progressive move of any, any kind anyway. We can't expect anything progressive from the from the religious authorities in Lebanon. But what I mean is, it's too obviously just like a, a, a matter of a political teasing and you know stirring things around in the worst possible moment, in my opinion. Like I'm all for secularization, but coming from this side, from this authority, uh, bringing it out to the public and putting it on, on the public uh, debate scene is is really. Uh, very strange at this moment and it's i feel like it's along with other news we're talking about this week it feels like the political and religious establishment in lebanon is doing so many things to polarize people as if it's an objective in itself at this moment you know to bring out fears to bring out old hatred to do these things that make the eruption of another 
unified uprising in Lebanon today more and more difficult. Uh, I really feel that this is like a counter-revolutionary moment at its uh, at its clearest. Right. Well, I mean, this this is one of the tools that has always worked in some degree or another for uh, Lebanon's ruling class, you know, and so it's not surprising to see sectarianism, uh, you know, wielded as a tool. And and of course, I, the, this this whole idea also runs through the topic that we were talking about earlier as well, which is the amnesty law, right? This is one of those things that I, I think the, the political class, the ruling class, uh, will continue to hold on to and and wield as a weapon, uh, so long as there are other sources of power being curtailed. You know, the the state doesn't have money anymore. So what what do you do? You fall back on old habits. And uh, on this note, I guess we can um, we can wrap up this episode. This hasn't been one of our usual episodes, as we said, in terms of its uh, its nature that we didn't delve into one topic. But we, I hope that we were able to, you know, just give an idea of the political mood and the main developments in the last uh, couple of weeks. Anyway, we will be back next week uh, with another episode of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Tune in. Until then, my name is Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red, and this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.